Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Thursday, February the 24th. And wow, overnight, uh, not as much sleep as we often get for the show because of Russia's full-scale invasion of the country of Ukraine, the neighboring Western country that used to be part of the Soviet Union. And there must be grand designs of a, on a military level for Vladimir Putin to maybe make it again. This is worth watching. This is a massive European story with tons of economic and cybersecurity implications for all of us in North America, Canada, as well uh, as the United States and Mexico. But uh, Marcus Kolga brings us everything we need to know about it in our podcast today. Our Chatterbox segment with Alan Carter and Sabrina Nanji is on the show as well. And much, much more. Toronto Today for Thursday starts now. Two massive stories happening right now, um, and one obviously the one transpiring overnight with an attack on Ukraine. Ukraine imposing martial law. There's a border guard attack. Um, there's a military infrastructure being attacked by Russia. All of it happening at the same time. It's a weird one because you can't instill panic in the streets. We're all watching this going. The obvious wouldn't you know wouldn't want that here wouldn't want to be them you're uh ex you're hearing explosions the government's imposed martial law which says don't go anywhere uh the implication is uh we'll we'll have this covered but that running is worse panicking is worse trying to drive away uh to get through checkpoints is worse um but uh the the comment from President Zelensky is we are working the army is working. From the Ukrainian leader. And while that has an element, I suppose, of being reassuring, um, in a way it's not, is it? Um, there's been separate attacks on Ukrainian positions from uh, Russian forces along all lines of contact. Um, I'm A lot of this, as you can imagine, middle of the day is coming in via some wire sources and whatnot. Um, it's just unbelievable. We're going to get to some audio on it in a little bit uh, that's very up to date. A reaction from the UK foreign minister. They're obviously five hours ahead of us in uh, in in the United Kingdom, so uh, they've been up and about with considerable reaction. There is supposed to be a nine o'clock conference call. Justin Trudeau would be part of that as a member of the G7, and they will speak at nine a.m. Eastern time, obviously afternoon for most of those European countries. But it'll be early here if nine a.m. is indeed deemed early. Um, you're listening to this right now, so that may not be considered necessarily early for any of us, even on a Saturday. But that's happening a little later on, uh, about you know, close to just under three hours from now. Let me start here um, with what happened yesterday with the amazing story of pulling back the Emergency Measures Act by Justin Trudeau and the Canadian government. It's something no one saw coming. There were things that a lot of people were predicting about this uh, specifically. But the idea that Trudeau would revoke this after insisting there was still a need for it on Monday night and defending that, really you know, doubling down on it on Tuesday, I don't think any of us on our bingo cards had Wednesday the announcement to end the usage of it. So why did that happen? Well, there's two main theories, two main theories to look at. One, the support wasn't there in the Senate. I don't know about that. I know there were senators that that don't feel as married to the idea of playing the party line. And that's been the case. There have been Stephen Harper appointees who went against Stephen Harper on legislation and said so publicly. You can go all the way back to the to, you know, Cretchen's run, Mulroney's run. There's always going to be senators 
who don't necessarily feel that uh, that bond of uh, of devotion to whoever put them in the Senate. Senate's a pretty good job. You don't do much. <laughs> you don't you don't get paid a tremendous amount, but you get paid a decent sum in the high 100s, maybe low 200s to really not have much of it. it it's a cushy position. And it's why many people clamor to be senator. They think about it uh, and they're ready to oftentimes if House of Commons. Uh, if you get elected normally, you don't need it. You've got a pension. You've got a six figure income yearly for the rest of your existence. But the Senate has tended to be more for former broadcasters. Famously, uh, you might recall the uh, former hockey coach who won the Stanley Cup with the Montreal Canadiens. Jacques Demers went into the Senate. He couldn't even read. Like, honestly, he had these tremendous struggles. I interviewed him a few times about it. He had tremendous struggles with literacy, but he was viewed as a heroic figure. And people thought, that's that's a guy that has the pulse of Canada. Let's put him in the Senate. And so I think that was Stephen Harper that ended up doing that. But Trudeau said the government yesterday was pretty confident that existing bylaws and the laws themselves were sufficient to keep Canada safe. Okay. Um, I thought that on Monday and Sunday night and many people that watched what was happening over the weekend with the, and I can't believe that's only four or five days away now. So much is happening and has happened. It's difficult to watch what we called the television show Ottawa over the weekend, over the long weekend, no less, but mostly Friday through Sunday and think, are these extraordinary power? Are there extraordinary powers happening right now? Are they necessary? Or is this a simple case of, making certain law enforcement and and you needed bigger numbers. No one's going to dispute or question that, but making certain law enforcement has the uh, backing to do the job. Uh, okay. Tow trucks. That was something that Justin Trudeau brought up on Monday. We needed to commandeer and, uh, and make sure that tow trucks, uh, we would, we would either use them our, ourselves for the government, have police drive them, or we would have companies come in um, and bring them on through to make certain that they uh, that they would tow some of the big rigs away. And the city of Ottawa, from the looks of it, is still in possession of a lot of those big rigs. Okay, I understand that. At a certain point in time, how long do you need the Emergency Measures Act for that specifically? So there's a lot of questions about it. One, one is, could this have passed through the Senate? And some don't think, my, I know my colleague Alex Pearson doesn't think it would have. And we played you that interview with Senator Housakis earlier before six o'clock. I think there's other people, and I'm inclined to think this is more the reason the Liberal caucus has just had it. They've had it, and it goes back to last fall's election. You heard three Liberal MPs within the span of one week, just as the protests were beginning, denoting, including uh, Joel, Joel Lightbound in Quebec. We had Nathaniel Erskine-Smith on the show document that you know he wanted there to be a better, more civil discourse in the House of Commons, and he said, we can look at ourselves. I'm paraphrasing, but he said, we can look at ourselves in the Liberal Party. Well, he's not talking about him. He's not talking about Mr. Lightbound. I think there's only a couple of people he's probably talking about, and people applauded him for it. This is Justin Trudeau documenting yesterday why, indeed, there wasn't a need for the emergency measures powers anymore. And today, after careful consideration, we're ready to confirm that the situation is no longer an emergency. Therefore, the federal government will be ending the use of the Emergencies Act. We are confident that existing laws and bylaws are now sufficient to keep people safe. Of course, 
we'll continue to be there to support provincial and local authorities if and when needed. I mean, that's a relief for the provincial and local authorities, but you would think that's something you count on anyway. You don't have to go into your kid's room at night and say, I just want you to know that we're going to keep the heat on for the house and we're going to keep running water and we might even feed you at certain points in a 24-hour span. They know that. They know that that's your job. That's the gig. That's the gig. Don't have kids if you don't want that to be the gig. And unless there's pure and complete economic hardship, you don't need to go into your kids' rooms and reassure that. Okay? They can't eat ice cream for dinner every night, but you get my point. Here's more from Justin Trudeau yesterday on why this was the time 48 hours after a wrestling match to get this through the House of Commons. Let's let's be very clear. The threat continues. Uh, we do see uh, whether it's social media activity or people who continue to be uh, you know, focused on uh, protesting and perhaps uh, illegal protesting that we need to be monitoring. Uh, but the acute emergency that gave rise to the invocation of the Emergencies Act uh, uh, 10 days ago, uh, that there were occupations so solidly implanted uh, that the police didn't have the kind of resources or tools available to dislodge them, um, that uh, emergency is now over. Okay, I, I mean, again, I think municipal and provincial authorities uh, can look at themselves in the mirror, too. This isn't just about Justin Trudeau and the federal government. If you are to think that the majority of the protests and the issues were about Justin Trudeau, that's fine. But municipal and provincial authorities had the wherewithal, had the resources, could have taken more action. Oh, my goodness, should have taken more action to move on the encampments over a three-week span. And they had the urging and support, let's put it this way, of Ottawa residents to do exactly that. Ottawa residents were begging. They said, listen, it's been two days. It's been four days. Now it's eight. Now it's 12. When are you going to do something? And once the emergency measures were proposed, what are we talking, nine days ago now, 10 days ago now, on the Monday after Super Bowl Sunday, uh, leading into that weekend, there was a, a, a more emboldening of, of, of the military. And I should say the RCMP and local police and provincial police to do just that. But people in Ottawa are wondering, why did we endure this? As I said two weeks ago, you have ordinary powers and you're not using them. But now you tell us that you need extraordinary powers when you're not even using your ordinary ones. Uh, more on that as the morning continues. Obviously, what's happened in uh, Ukraine has absolutely galvanized the world. And people are incredibly, incredibly uh, nervous and pensive. It's a big moment in European history and the present, obviously, and with what we're seeing as well. It, it feels far away, but I think the way the world has sort of pushed together, the Internet's done that. It feels a little different than the Soviets going into Afghanistan when I'm a little kid or even the Iranian hostage crisis when I'm a little kid. You're like, well, that's not exactly in our backyard, but it's incredibly important. Here's a live moment last night. Uh, from a CNN reporter speaking to Don Lemon, where he's doing a report and then starts to hear shells going on around him. He has to put on a flak jacket and a helmet. This was not some kind of exercise. This was, you might be in the wrong place at the wrong time to be doing a live television report. Who, who, ...who resist. Oh, I tell you what, I just heard a big bang right here 
behind me. I thought we shouldn't have done the live shot here. There are big explosions taking place in Kiev right now. Um, I can't see where they're taking place from this vantage point here on top of the roof of the hotel in central Kiev. And I can't explain what they are, but I heard four or five explosions a few moments ago. I don't know whether our viewers or whether you in the studio there could hear uh, what, we could what, hear it, Matthew. what I just heard. You could, right. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know what it is, but I will tell you that the United States has warned was that another uh, the one? Ukrainians. Yeah, I mean, I think it was, but they're, in, they're quite distant from where I am now. But I can tell you that the United States has, us, has, of course, warned the Ukrainian authorities that it is possible that there could be uh, strikes, uh, airstrikes, missile attacks, ground attacks as well on various places around the country, including on the capital, Kiev. Now, I don't know whether that's what we're witnessing now, but it, it, it's a remarkable coincidence that I'm hearing these explosions Matthew? in Kiev right now. Yeah, I, I mean, he's right in downtown Kiev. I saw where the town square was behind him. And if he's hearing the explosions, they're getting closer to a downtown core. It's not the most massive. It's the biggest city in Ukraine, but it's not, you know, it's not London or Paris or even Toronto in terms of size. On Good Morning Britain this morning, I want to get this in. The UK Foreign Minister, James Cleverly, had some confidence, had some confidence that Vladimir Putin just wasn't going to be able to win and get exactly what he wants here. And he thinks there's going to be internal pressure, let alone the external pressure here. Well, I think Vladimir Putin himself is pursuing a completely reckless course of action. The people around him, the military advisors to him, they must know that this is a, uh, you know, a doom to failure and a completely ridiculous uh, set of activities for him. So we're trying to apply pressure to them. We're also trying to ensure that the uh, the Russian economy um, is uh, is hurt so that this invasion cannot be funded. We've already seen the Russian stock exchange, their equivalent of the, of the FTSE, uh, drop by over 30 points. That is a huge collapse in the economic value of uh, the Russian uh, economy. Uh, the ruble has reduced in value. This is, these are real, these are tangibles. Yeah, all those things are. Uh, Russia's got to decide what the, what's the stomach here? What's the appetite for devastating the economy? Russia went into a deep, deep recession after the invasion of Crimea because there were serious sanctions against them, but they got off the mat and recovered. Russia often does that. I kind of had that very, you know, relatable chat, if you will, about how this ends up affecting you, Russia and Ukraine. Um, a lot of people stayed up and watched last night. We got the sense that uh, an invasion was imminent around uh, 1030 in the evening last night. I'd say that is a, uh, a safe scenario that that's where we were. Um, but the idea of I remember the desert storm night. I remember being just a kid in college thinking, OK, this is going to be something. Now, that didn't feel ominous to us here. Right. Because that was sort of our side. But it's a 
different scenario, I think, if you're living in Europe right now and there's so many economic implications as well. Marcus Kolga, there's nobody better that we um, enjoy talking uh, Russia with, but uh, no doubt this is heavy, heavy circumstances, and he's kind enough to make some time from disinfowatch.org to join us now. You're, you make such generous time with uh, Alex's show, our show as well. Thanks for being here on, on short notice. I'm sure it was a long night for you. It's a lot of people woke up. We had one caller say, Marcus, that he he just felt a little numb going to bed and, and felt the same way. This is a massive, massive historic moment here, and it's not a good one. Yeah. Uh, thank, first of all, thanks for having me on, Greg. Um, listen, I, I was up until at least three in the morning. I've, I've never felt that sort of pit of your stomach, you know, uh, nausea and, and sort of pain uh, before in my life. Um, watching the explosions, watching the scenes from Ukraine, um, you know, the geopolitical earth under our feet is shifting right now. Um, our entire security apparatus, the order of the world that we've known uh, since the Cold War, uh, since the end of the Cold War, is changing as we speak. Um, Vladimir Putin has attacked a peaceful neighbor. He has, um, this is the sort of uh, warfare and the sort of attack that we haven't seen since the Second World War. Um, and, uh, you know, Canadians should be extremely concerned today um, watching what's happening in Ukraine because. You know, you and I have talked about this many times before. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if we don't stop Vladimir Putin now, there is no stopping him. Um, he will take Ukraine. He will step beyond that. I think NATO right now is threatened. Our and let's not forget Canada's borders are NATO's borders. Um, there's a threat right now. It's at our doorstep, uh, and Canada really needs to step up its game. The, the sanctions that we announced uh, two days ago are are good. Um, they're not going. They clearly did not stop Vladimir Putin. So we need to start thinking about adopting measures to uh, to stop him right now where he is, and to make him reconsider his uh, his calculation of of going to war with Ukraine. Marcus Kolga is our guest on six forty Toronto. Uh, with all this breaking uh, overnight and throughout much of the morning. Um, <laughs> Uh, some of this is is to try and figure Putin out psychologically. Like, it's one thing for us to giggle. There he is shirtless on a horse. There he is scoring seven goals in a hockey game because no, everyone's afraid to take the puck off, off him. The great concern here, Marcus, is, is this someone that's gone a little unhinged, that is so power-hungry getting later in his life, there haven't been checks and balances in his own country um, yeah. to prevent this, that uh, that anything is possible. Usually it's the smaller countries that have a Saddam Hussein, a Muammar Gaddafi, um, you know, and, and and they they do what they can for as long as they can. But they know they're getting stopped eventually. That psychology might not exist here with Mr. Putin. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really good question. And one that I've been pondering over the past few weeks, you know, uh, strategically, even though we may have disagreed with it and um, would have pushed against it, um, had he just uh, decided to take those territories that his militias already controlled in eastern Ukraine, I think strategically it would have made sense for him. Um, his uh, his domestic uh, situation is very poor. He's uh, not improved the conditions and lives of regular Russians over the past 22 years. His popularity is, is sinking. It's, it's, he was recently polling in the, in the very low 30s. I would guess that that's much lower now because Russians, quite frankly, are not interested. Regular Russians are not interested in war. Um, and so he needed a spectacle. And so that would have provided him the spectacle. 
I did not believe that what he did last night, uh, I didn't think that was in the cards um, because I thought that he was still a rational actor, uh, that he was making, trying to make strategic decisions. Um, this is not strategic. Um, this doesn't make any geopolitical sense uh, whatsoever. Uh, he is going to put his troops into a bloodbath. Um, yeah. You know, the Ukrainian army is, is motivated to defend their country. They're well-trained. They are not going to stop. I don't see how Vladimir Putin can benefit from this attack, from the assault that he's undertaking against the Ukraine right now. And, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a little bit concerned that perhaps he's a little, you know, not a little, but considerably irrational. And if he is irrational uh, and his mind isn't clear, um, those decisions that he's taking, you have to question where, where else are they going to go? Um, so, yeah, it's a bit of a concern. And, you know, you, you talk about his legacy. I mean, this, he's a guy that's been in power for 22 years. Again, he has no domestic legacy. He's turning 70 this year. And when he, we know that when he looks in the mirror, uh, he sees himself uh, beside Vladimir, or he sees himself beside Stalin. He sees himself beside Ivan the Terrible, perhaps Hitler now as well, uh, as these um, terrifying but great uh, historical figures who have made an impact, terrible or not. And so, you know, what he's doing right now needs to be seen and viewed through that lens. I think that's the only I'm so glad you said that. And I'm telling you, like, it's so refreshing uh, to talk to someone of, of your knowledge and expertise. And it's refreshing. I, I thought our callers were brilliant as well. We can't be afraid to use that H word. We can't be afraid to mention Adolf Hitler. I know people's hair stands up on their shoulders, but this is the last time somebody attempted such a thing in Europe. It's been almost 80 years since someone had that kind of boldness and bravado to illegally invade another sovereign country it we can't be afraid to use those kind of words and and mention uh the fuhrer if you will because this is the first time that we've seen something like this in uh in, in european in the last 80 years in europe that someone has been so bold and been so aggressive yeah you're absolutely right i mean we need to put what what happened last night and what is going to happen over the coming days and weeks in its proper context um you know it's not just la di da life goes on like I said earlier, this is a, this, what this attack represents is a complete shift in the geopolitical order, the security arrangements in Europe, and that includes our own security uh, arrangements here in, in Canada. Let's not forget that Vladimir Putin has been engaging in a mass militarization, not just on his borders with Ukraine, but in the Arctic over the past five, six, seven years. He's built... 26 new bases in the Arctic region. Um, and just last spring, he uh, made a declaration, his government, first of all, made a declaration that it would aggressively pursue uh, resource imperialism in the Arctic area. And then he made a claim with the UN to all of the resources underneath the Arctic Sea. So it's not just Ukraine that's a threat. The Arctic is, there's an imminent threat there. He wants We're some of our territory, there. doesn't he? He's claimed every resource underneath the Arctic Sea right up to our Arctic borders, up to our coastline. And he's built these, these um, you know, James Bond-like super weapons to achieve that. There's a, there's a high-speed nuclear torpedo that he just uh, announced that was developed uh, over the summer. This is, this is a torpedo that has no defensive um, uh, sort of uh, 
Um, it's not a defensive weapon. It is a completely offensive weapon. It is intended to irradiate our coast, our Arctic coastline. Um, you know, we need to be keeping an eye on this. This is the nature of Vladimir Putin. What we saw last night, that is who we're dealing with. This is not a rational actor. This is not someone who does diplomacy. This is only a, a leader who understands power. And, and we need to stand up to him in order to deter any further aggression by, by him. Marcus Kolg is our guest on uh, Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. It, as long as this continues, um, th- this is a hard question to answer, and it's a it's equally hard question to ask. What's the North American appetite? What's the Western European appetite, Marcus, for boots on the ground? We sent men and women to Afghanistan to stop the Taliban, who we blame for harboring 9-11 terrorists. It took 20 years for that war to end, at least in the United States it did. Um, sanctions may not be enough. Do we have the, you know, the stomach and the appetite for boots on the ground uh, pushback against Vladimir Putin here in Ukraine? Look, I mean, one of the, the simple things that we can do is send as many defensive, lethal defensive weapons to Ukraine as we can to ensure that they have the resources and the tools available to defend their own country. Um, that's one thing that we definitely need to do. Um, NATO is meeting today. I should hope mm. that there will be a decision to pour troops and equipment into the Central and Eastern European region, you know, from Estonia to the north to Romania and the south. Um, we need to defend those borders because clearly Vladimir Putin has, has sent a message overnight that those borders to him, they don't matter. The security situation does not matter. And so making sure that those missions, like Canada's mission in Latvia, um, are doubled, tripled in size, making sure that those aren't, you know, sending a message to Vladimir Putin by making those missions permanent, at least for the next, you know, 10 years or so. Um, Because if, you know, Vladimir Putin remains in power, this threat is never, ever going away. And let's not forget, Vladimir Putin just last summer extended the the possibility in his term to 2035. So this is a long-term problem. We need to know that it's not going over or going away overnight. Uh, even if uh, Ukraine is capable of defending itself, that threat will remain. It'll be persistent and it's only growing. So NATO really needs to stand up right now because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, Vladimir Putin is just a, a typical schoolyard bully. He will keep taking and taking until someone stands up with him or a group stands up with him and socks it to him in the nose. That's the only I asked you this before um, about the transition from Trump to Biden, and it was very clear um, that there were issues, obviously. I mean, Donald Trump's still crowing away going, oh, Biden, uh, you know, Putin's a genius, yeah. this and that. But I worried, and I think you did also, that Putin wouldn't respect Biden enough, wouldn't think he was hawkish enough. That Putin was concerned about Hillary Clinton being hawkish in 2016. But he doesn't want to see, you know, a Ronald Reagan in the White House. I'm, I think we'd agree Joe Biden is not that. Are they taking advantage of some dysfunction and, and just a lack of strength and force in the U.S. White House right now? I think that's an honest question. Yeah, no, it, it's, it is a good question. And I think that had we, you know, I think we talked about this a couple of months ago. And uh, certainly, you know, I think the, the White House didn't seem very strong on on this issue. They didn't seem prepared to stand up to Vladimir Putin. I would even say that that was true about a month ago. But I would say that mm-hmm. over the past two to three weeks, um, you know, I think um, Joe Biden has surprised a lot of us. Uh, he's brought the Western world together. 
the fact that he was able to convince the Germans uh, to put a hold on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. This is a, a pipeline that, of course, uh, transports gas, natural gas, directly from Russia to Germany. Russia relies, half of its uh, national income is uh, relies on the, the sales of gas. And so for Germany to put a stop to the certification process of that, that pipeline, effectively you know, keeping it shut off, is going to be very painful for Vladimir Putin. So the fact that Biden was able to convince the Germans uh, to do that um, is, is very good. And again, he's brought the Western world together. NATO today seems stronger than it has ever been. So, um, you know, in, in that sense, I think Joe Biden's done a, a, a very good job over the past couple of weeks of leading the Western world, taking that, that mantle, that Reagan-esque sort of mantle and, and, uh, and standing for, for all of us. Marcus, can't thank you enough for making uh, time for us on short time. I know you want to uh, get to uh, to see what exactly comes out of uh, the G7 phone call that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and President Biden um, and Prime Minister Boris Johnson involved in uh, at nine o'clock. Thanks, as always, for making time. There's nobody better on this front uh, and nobody uh, nobody knows their stuff like you do. Thanks for doing this for us. Thanks so much, Greg. Uh, Sabrina Nanji uh, is joining us from QP Observer, does amazing work there. It's great to have you on. Thanks for coming on again. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, one of my contemporaries, I, uh, you know, I feel a kinship, uh, 640 Toronto host, global news anchor, Alan Carter. You and I are older than Sabrina. Sabrina's probably shocked at that, you know, just just knowing <laughs> us and by, you know, our, our, our dad dastardly dashing good looks i don't think dastardly good looks is something is a thing alan but um you and i are about the same age and and we live such a charmed life through the 70s and the 80s and the 90s where where we didn't just walk around going oh my god we're all gonna die soon our innocence is gone alan in the last few years let's be on and then now this with russia uh it's the end of the world uh greg uh, i'm not <laughs> sure i feel fine <laughs> i mean i i remember in high school when uh uh, Ronald Reagan bombed like Muammar Gaddafi. Gaddafi was running around bombing like nightclubs in Berlin and causing some shenanigans in Europe. And he just lay, he just dropped a bomb uh, on like dropped a bunch of bombs on Libya. And we thought, well, unless Russia reacts to this, we're still good. Like you never were riding the school bus home from high school, like the dummies we were and going, well, nuclear Armageddon's just around the corner. We should, we should plan for it. We never had those kind of feelings. <laughs> well, I don't know. I feel like I'm, I, I don't know. It's, you remember the day after uh, or tomorrow? Remember the, the movie. The, that's right. The movie. Yeah. I think we need a new one to be able to warn people about what's coming our way. <laughs> that was like two movies. It's like before that white flash of light. Um, and then after when, uh, yeah, people were, were, uh, were suffering the after effects of that nuclear bomb that was set in Lawrence, Kansas. Don't ask me why I remember that right in the epicenter of the geographical United States. There you have it. Lawrence, Kansas. Okay. Uh, the Emergency Measures Act. Let's get to this. Uh, and Sabrina, knowing the provincial politics as you know it and as you cover it like a, uh, like a fine-tooth comb, we saw the province uh, follow suit and drop their Emergency Measures Act. But the big story was certainly Justin Trudeau lifting it. And uh, I, I think there's a big question here. Does this, in your mind, is this proof that he said he'd move fast to drop it and his critics were wrong about criticizing him? Or is it proof that that maybe it was never that needed in the first place? A lot of the work that got done over the weekend, you didn't really need any of these extraordinary measures to get the police to do what they were supposed to do. 
Yeah, I think it matters, you know, what side you're on and how you want to spin this. But certainly there's arguments to be made for both ways. I mean, of course, I'm seeing all of this uh, through a political lens here. And I don't really understand like what's changed since Monday, you know, when the, the RCMP said they, said they needed this. Uh, you know, so I think there's a lot of questions here that need to be answered. Uh, I don't know how much uh, of an answer we're going to get on this, you know, in, in terms of even bringing in the Emergencies Act in the first place. But I guess I was, you know, kind of encouraged to hear that, you know, the, a committee in the House of Commons is going to be reviewing this. And I guess I would hope that that um, inquiry is public. Uh, I obviously know, you know, uh, some police intel, we might not be able to get full public information on that, but certainly there needs to be some answers here, some accountability more than, you know, the little we've had so far, because obviously this is going to set a precedent um, for the future, you know, future governments uh, enacting this uh, willy nilly. I, I don't think anyone wants to see that happen. And of course, you mentioned the province, which was quick to lift uh, our own state of emergency in Ontario right after the feds did, but uh, like not so fast because still police are being empowered uh, with all the extra tools that they had for this emergency. I mean, we already heard Premier Doug Ford say, you know, there's going to be legislation coming at the provincial level to block, uh, you know, protests like this, which, you know, we've already had the Canadian Civil Liberties Association say that could be a knee-jerk thing. So it seems like this is having a domino effect um, mm -hmm. and th there need to be some answers, some justification on this uh, for future applications from the government. Alan Carter, how surprised were you yesterday by uh, by that transpiring, given it, Trudeau and the Liberals had to go to the mat in, in terms of public opinion, in terms of debate? It's in prime time on Monday evening on Family Day. Like there a lot was put into making sure this passed and, and making it a confidence vote, no less to lift it 48 hours later. Just I was shocked. Were you? I kind of thought that they'd at least get it through the Senate just to be able to say it went through both houses. I, I, I sort of thought they would wait for that. But I think the political, you know, the, the, the political cost of keeping it in place for any longer is is very high. So I think they sort of decided to take their medicine and say, OK, well, we don't need it anymore because it's it, 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 it's just such a drag on the on the government getting hammered every day. Like, why do we need this? Why do we still need this? You know, Ottawa's back to normal. There's no blockades here or there. And so the justification got harder and harder. And you know, I just you know, it's it, it's so Canadian. We're gonna have we're gonna have a study on it. We'll get a white paper. Maybe maybe if we're lucky, a royal commission. Ooh, that's <laughs> it's so Canadian. <laughs> It's one of those things as well where um, I, I get it, and and uh, he's damned if he does, damned if he doesn't at a certain point in time. But this might have been the line that that has stuck in my head the most, and I think we chatted about it last week. There were ordinary measures and ordinary powers that the city, the province, the prime minister, the federal government all could have combined on in the first 22 days of this. So anything extraordinary—I know Justin Trudeau mentioned tow trucks— but there's got to be more to it than just being able to commandeer a tow truck to take a big rig behind a fence and 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 leave it there. There has to be. And and there was just a, a level of government inactivity that has pushed a lot of people to say, where's my where are my leaders? Who am I supposed to vote for? Who am I supposed to believe in? Well, I, I think I think everyone has taken a massive hit here, uh, you know. Trudeau for his divisive words at the beginning of the convoy and how that didn't help out and 
and inaction. I mean, he's he's the guy in charge, so where does the buck stop? Then there are the conservatives who actively supported and got went out for photos and hooray, rah, rah for the convoy and saw a pox on their house. And then the NDP who, you know, voted in favor of the Emergencies Act. And there are, you know, there are people within that party, Sven Robinson, for example, calling out Jugmeet Singh saying, hey, Tommy Douglas voted against the War Measures Act for Trudeau's dad. Why can't we stand up for it? I, I think everybody comes off looking just terrible. That's it's hard to disagree with that. Uh, Sabrina, when you look at uh, at at where the government had to go here, is there um, is there I don't know that they do anything based on polling quite like the Ford government does. You know this well, that the Ontario government seems to react to how the public feels. This is what the public will like. Wait a minute. We read this wrong. Let's pull it off the table. Forty eight hours later, even even the famous closing of playgrounds for 24 hours back on that dark Friday in, in April. The federal government seems to be above a lot of that, and they just do what, even with a minority government, not a majority government, Sabrina, they just seem to do what they do. They, these, these, uh, these governments seem to govern at very, with very different perspectives of how the public feels about them. Yeah. And you mentioned the province, you know, the irony to all of this is that some of, you know, what these protesters were, you know, uh, uh, battling against are already being lifted and being lifted, you know, sooner than expected. Of course, you know, there's there's different jurisdictions. And I think that was kind of the, the big issue here is that maybe we wouldn't have even needed a federal emergencies act, you know, something that's never been done before if uh, this was handled at the local level or even the provincial level weeks ago. Uh, you know, I think the, the public was just so sick and tired of all the figure pointing, you know, people saying it's not our jurisdiction, you know, it's not our responsibility. We need these powers. Um, but at the end of the day, like police um, had the powers to, uh, had the tools to, you know, enforce the laws um, and, and that just wasn't happening. So I think definitely we need some answers on this. I think, uh, you know, folks in Ottawa and, and definitely Windsor are at least, you know, uh, happy that things have been cleared out right now. But I think that, you know, the, internationally as well, like we're still reeling from this. I think, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I was even watching, you know, Fox News is still covering this. Uh, we, we think this all eyes are are on Canada right now. And it's just kind of, um, I guess, amazing to see how other countries like even Europe and France were able to to uh, shut shut this these things down. These other, you know, spinoff protests in a way that turned out really complicated, uh, jurisdictionally speaking, in, in Canada. Well, and we we I think we really dodged a bullet in Toronto just the one Saturday, really, um, three weeks ago from from this coming Saturday. That was the voice of Serena Nanji, QP Observer. Uh, Alan Carter's joining us as well, 640 Toronto host. He's got the Alan Carter radio program coming up at 12 noon today after Kelly's show. Um, Alan, let's go there with you with, with restrictions being uh, lifted here, there and everywhere. What's your sense? Are people now more ready to travel? Is it car travel as opposed to air travel? We're going to get better weather. This has been a really long December, January and February. It comes to an end next week. Mandates are getting lifted. Um, what do you think the confidence level is among uh, among people you speak to, among our listeners to just to just go places now? Well, I think there's a real pent up demand for it. Uh, I mean, for for those of uh, those that have the privilege and the wherewithal and haven't been battered by the economy so hard over the last two years that they could actually consider a vacation. And I think a lot of people are also thinking, well, whoa, hey, I'm looking at those inflation numbers. 
And I mean, what's it going to be six months from now? I mean, what's I mean, what's gas going to be just even for the fallout of the attack on Ukraine? So I think that I, I think that's a drag on on it. I think there's a financial drag on people traveling again. But I do think that there's a real pent up demand. And when the PCR uh, lifts, the test uh, requirements lift on March. Is that March 1st, I believe? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next week. Yeah. So there, there's that. Um, and, and, you know, there's more flights. And I, I think there's going to be I think March break, you're going to see, you know, we're not going to be back to 100 percent. But, I, you know, I've talked to. Uh, the Canadian Airlines Council, and they they think their numbers are going to get back pretty close to pre-pandemic times pretty quickly. Uh, there's things that we still need to do. We, they're calling for the drop of the um, rapid test requirement before leaving. It'd be nice to get rid of that too. But I think there's going to be a there's going to be a pent up demand to travel. I think it's going to be hard to find spots. This you know, if you're all of a sudden like, that's it, I can't take it anymore. I'm out of here. I think you're going to be in for a bit of a sticker shock and an availability shock. Yeah, I can see that March break, Easter as well. Sabrina, I got about a minute and a half, but yeah, same kind of scenario. I think it's easier to sort of, as Alan noted, kind of get in the car and go. Drive to Niagara Falls. Drive Once we can drive across the border, go to upstate New York. It, I think it's a different call to say book a big summer trip or book a <laughs> look at Europe right now. It's Eastern Europe, but it's still Europe. Like there's people that must be really hesitant to book things five, six, seven months in advance now, not knowing where we think we're getting out of this, but we've thought that before. Yeah, that, you know, we can't really ignore those feelings, but it's been a long two years. And I think people are pe- feeling pent up, you know, uh, it's good that the rules are being changed, you know, for travel. Uh, obviously it wasn't really pleasant to travel anyway, you know, beyond COVID anxiety that people might have, you know, the extra testing, um, it, it gets very complicated. It's not fun to, to travel. Um, but I think that, you know, it, it's going to be more, um, maybe anxiety inducing to see the Vax pass system being lifted, you know, that's happening provincially, um, so you might, uh, if we see that changing on the travel side, you know, it, it might be a bit more nerve wracking to sit on a plane for a couple of hours next to someone, if you don't know their, their VAC status or not. But I think for the most part, you know, we can be confident Ontario's numbers are, are really, uh, you know, high, we have a high rate of vaccination. So, um, th- I, I think, you know, where's that staycation credit the province was talking about, you know, <laughs> let's, let's take a road trip, go to Niagara, you know, go up North. Check out cottage country, uh, baby steps, maybe here. The only the ultimate irony of Ottawa is a couple of protesters were bragging that they uh, they used the staycation credit to stay in downtown Ottawa and then go protest against mandates and vaccine passports and the like. So I don't know if that fits in Alanis's song, but it's it's that's Alan. That's more ironic than rain on your wedding day. That's just bad weather. That's all that is. It's just <laughs> you want to know. That's all I say. <laughs> well, let's not quote those lyrics. It's way too early for that. Well, let's, save that let's save that for 12.05 later today. Let's launch into launch into that second verse and see where that gets us. Uh, thanks, you two. Really appreciate it as always. You guys are great. Be well. Thanks. I love, there was a theater in London, Ontario, where I grew up called The New Yorker. And it, it was a repertory theater. Now, that served two purposes. One, my dad and I used to love going to movies. I can see a movie now on television. I'm like, saw that with my dad, didn't see that with my dad. And uh, we'd go see older movies. Um, we saw Citizen Kane there. Okay, I needed to see it, by the way, for a project. And I think I left it at the last minute. And the good timing, I know that's shocking. Uh, the good timing of it was, because of the couple university film classes I took, is that they were showing it at the New Yorker maybe five days before, I don't know, an essay was due for it. So um, I love the idea of that. Uh, the review cinema 
is one such theater. They've got a 35-year anniversary screening of, of Beverly Hills Cop 2 coming up. So they put the new films out. Belfast is uh, is showing there uh, right now, or it starts actually in a few days. Um, they're going to keep the vaccine passport in place. And we thought that's an interesting call going into April. But um, there's a there's a method behind I, what I would call the not-so-madness about it. And I'm pleased to welcome on Serena Whitney, who's the programming director at Review Cinema. Uh, Serena, thanks very much for getting early for us. I love movies. I love the, uh, the idea of the experience. Uh, I don't get to go as often as I used to. And when I get to go, I'm getting dragged to Marvel movies by 12- and 13-year-olds. So, um, you know, I want to wind the clocks back about a half decade and go to the movies I want to go to. I'll put it that way. Well, thank you for having me here. Well, it's ha- I, I, it, tell me again uh, and tell our listeners what exactly the stop and start and the stop and start of doing what you do. And just for moviegoers in general, it's um, the industry felt like it was changing anyway with all the streaming uh, services and whatnot. But this hasn't made it any easier the last two years for movie lovers, has it? No, it, it certainly hasn't at, at all. <laughs> um, but the, the one good thing is that uh, we do have a good community behind us. So um, we know that uh, they'll back our uh, decision. Yeah, you guys are, are well uh, supported there. So tell us a little bit. I know you put it out um, via social media that there's going to be vaccine proof in effect until April 4th. And I think, you know, it's still hard to believe with everything that's going on around us that things change next week and we won't have to be digging in our phones for QR codes and whatnot. But you made, I think, an important decision to say um, that some some of our moviegoers expected an environment where there are vaccinated people around them. And that's something we all cared certainly about in July and August and September when all this started. What went into the decision-making there? Um, what went into the decision-making was basically we, our customers, we, we're, we're getting a lot of feedback um, even beforehand. We're getting emails, phone calls, and uh, people were like, you know, threatening to refund their tickets. And, you know, we started to notice that people probably won't come back um, right away. So, um, and we all, we also wanted to compromise and also just kind of by setting a deadline, it was to basically say, hey, we're trying to make it easier to understand that we're going to have to learn how to coexist anyway, and we're not going to have a choice. <laughs> so um, I'm hoping this amount of time get get is giving people the time to say, like, properly be able to, like, phase into this new um, change. Serena Whitney's programming director at Review Cinema. They're going to keep their vaccine uh, passport policy in place until about April 4th uh, or so. Um, so you heard from more people that said, I- I'd just be more comfortable coming um, over the next five, six weeks um, than than otherwise you probably don't lose any customers because the people that if you're fully vaccinated and you're not terribly concerned who's around you, you're probably still coming anyway. You'll show the QR code. You want the experience. You want to see the movie, but you thought you'd lose business without doing this. Oh, absolutely. And I think, I think a lot of businesses will, um, it's a hard decision. It's like, uh, yeah. it's a very, it's a cash 22 that, that where businesses are put in right now. Um, if, if this was properly phased out, uh, I don't think this would have been a hard decision, you know, if we were able to wait at least till like April or like, you know, spring when people, it's not cold season and flu season. Um, so um, we're just trying to, you know, we're just trying to do the right thing and honor our ticket buyers and our existing customers. 
you must find there's people very ready when you have reopened at different points in time. Uh, I would bet in the last, you know, 15, 18 months, you, you probably find there's just such a surge of energy. I can't I can't wait to be in restaurants more and go to concerts more and movies more. There, there's a lot of people just um, who, who luckily, maybe luckily, have been sitting also on disposable income that they would have used to go do things like this. And they're ready to do it again. Yes. Yeah. Every time we open our doors, which is, you know, we've had to close down twice because of lockdowns. Um, we like immediately people come back. So uh, that's really uh, nice to know that our community has our back. Tell our audience a little bit about the history of your theater, too. Um, as I mentioned, you know, you look at old pictures from uh, the 70s. I was sort of waxing nostalgic about about going to repertory cinema with my dad in the in the you know when he would take me when I was 10 11 years old and I I realized that I'm seeing an important movie I'm seeing kind of a kind of a classic right now the review's got such history to it in the city of Toronto Yes um the review has is actually celebrated its 110th um year of being around as a movie theater and uh it's it's incredible it's it's already survived two pandemics and um it just goes to show you like how how strong this uh, cinema and what what the cinema can do for every like people in the city. Um, very proud to be working for a non for profit community uh, cinema like the review. Give me a sense of, as to your thoughts on where you do think the industry is is going. There is obviously, you know, the award season comes around and there's movies that were just on Netflix or just on Apple or Amazon, and yet, um, you know, we've had. VCRs were going to hurt the movie industry. And then all of a sudden pay TV was going to hurt the movie industry. And then, you know, putting surround sound and big screens in everybody's basement was going to hurt it. And people still go, people just like that social experience. It did. They don't feel they can replicate it many times in their own houses. Yeah. It's a communal, it's a communal experience. I feel that in the past two years, people really were lacking that experience. So people are coming out and we, we are shocked sometimes to be, uh, programming a movie that you could watch right on Netflix um, and people will like still come. And uh, it's, it's, it's very, it's very cool to know that um, streaming is not killing the cinematic experience yet. What's the website for, uh, for the review and how can people find out more about you? I want to give you that uh, certainly um, to promote uh, a great traditional place to go see a movie theater, as opposed to some, you know, 40 screen, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, big box store, a big box movie theater. Um, how can people find out what's playing at the review? Oh, uh, yeah, they can go to uh, reviewcinema.ca uh, or they can follow us on uh, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Serena, thank you so much for uh, spending time with us and uh, and good luck. I, I think it's an important conversation to have about the policy going forward. And, and I think we've also realized that we're just not we can't please everybody all the time, but you're doing something for your loyal customers. And uh, and I think it's going to work out uh, in the long term. Thanks for spending the time with us. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We really do appreciate it. You can find us live tomorrow. Uh, a lot more on Russia, Ukraine, a lot more also on masks. An author writes a definitive book documenting that he doesn't believe that mask mandates work. Well, he's not alone feeling that the way the tides are moving in this uh, particular direction. But we'll find out why he thinks that and for how long he's thought that on the show. It's an interview you won't want to miss. That's coming up tomorrow live on Toronto Today between 530 and 9 o'clock. Thanks again for listening.